It's time to accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 746 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. Hey, I have another excellent episode lined up for you today. Joining me as my guest is Todd Caponi. Todd's the author of a book called The Transparency Sale, How Unexpected Honesty and Understanding the Buying Brain Can Transform Your Results. And among the topics we're talking about today are Todd's five top hopes for the sales profession in 2020. And uh, we're going to start with number one on his list. And I have to admit, I couldn't agree more. Uh, his number one hope is that we stop talking about all this nonsense about the death of sales. And hopefully that's that's put to death itself here in 2020. Among other topics we'll get into today are why salespeople need to learn how to become buying journey Sherpas, using Todd's term, for their buyers. Uh, we'll talk about how Todd hopes sales can rise in the rankings of trusted professions. And we'll get into why transparency is so vital for helping make this happen for sellers. We'll talk about why Todd hopes that salespeople and sales leaders start paying more attention to behavioral science and decision science and sales and take from that what can also teach them about their buyers and themselves. And we'll also dive into the topic of sales enablement. And this is one of Todd's hopes about that sales organizations really ramp up their investment in enablement and training because sellers sellers are missing out on so much learning they could be doing. So we'll be getting into all of that and much, much more. But before we get to Todd, I'm going to take a second to talk to you about VanillaSoft. VanillaSoft is the industry's leading sales engagement platform. And then, so what does that mean? Well, it means that you can eliminate sales lead cherry picking by your reps. It means your reps will make more than two or three outreach attempts for every lead they get. And it means that each rep will actually follow an omnichannel cadence. Now, to help you with that, you need to check out VanillaSoft's ultimate guide to prospecting. Now, in this guide, Daryl Prale and Daniel Disney will show you how to combine cold calling with social selling for outrageous results. Now, you can get your copy of this guide at VanillaSoft.com forward slash Andy Paul. That is VanillaSoft.com forward slash Andy Paul. All right, let's jump into it. Todd, welcome to Accelerate. Well, thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to finally meet you. I mean, we've sort of been circling each other for a while here. Um, you're based, where are you joining us from? It looks like, as I said, a subway station <laughs> or a mall. Yeah, I, I, I hang out in a subway station, but I'm Perfect. based just uh, northwest of Chicago in beautiful Palatine, Illinois. Palatine, Illinois. Are you cold yet? Oh, God. It is. Uh, it's been crazy. And we had, so uh, Halloween a few months ago, uh, it snowed four inches. So yeah. my younger kids, and they loved it. But they were trudging through the snow, so winter started earlier. <laughs> now, here's a question for you. How old are your kids? Uh, six and eight. Okay. So, boys, girls? Uh, one boy, that six-year-old's a boy. And you know what? I digress. He just turned seven, so he's okay. seven. And Tastes- then my daughter is eight, and she'll be turning uh, nine in February. All right. Well, in case they listen to the show, <laughs> make sure they get the ages right. So, have you started training your seven-year-old to shovel the driveway? That's a good point. Now, and I'm a, uh, I'm totally a snowblower guy. So oh, you are. Fire that thing. I mean, normally the snow around here is heavy enough that shoveling is uh, kind of a fool's errand. So, <laughs> I'll stop the, uh, the snowblower. Well, you know, that's what I always thought growing up in Wisconsin, and yeah, I would 
plead with my dad, who would knock on the door at 5.30 in the morning. It was time to hear him to take a shower to get ready for work and see the driveways all snowed over and go shovel driveway. And it's like, <laughs> can't you just buy a snowblower? And he goes, I've got one. That was my, my role in life for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think mowing the lawn will be first. Yeah, well, I did that as well. So everything was sort of handed down from an older brother <laughs> when he left. It was up to me. So, well, thanks for joining me. As I said, we have sort of a, a holiday. This is the last episode I'm recording this year. This will, people are listening to us in January, hopefully. But um, you'd written an article on your blog about your five hopes for sales in 2020. I thought, well, that's, first of all, very optimistic to have hopes. <laughs> and I thought, let's go through that because I thought they were kind of entertaining and, and uh, worth talking about. So, your first one was you said you hope for the the death of the death of sales trope <laughs> that we're also tired of hearing about. So tell us what motivated that for you. Well, yeah, I mean, I think uh, part of the idea of doing hopes versus predictions is I can't predict anything. Um, so yes. I decided that hopes would be a little bit more of a positive way to go about this. But you know when. I do a lot on LinkedIn, um, just kind of spreading ideas around. And I always see people talking about the death of cold calling, that cold calling's dying, the death of uh, classroom training, the death of this, the death of this. And it always drove me crazy. And so I started doing the research because I'm a nerd. And it's funny, you know, one of the things I call out there is there's only been one profession since the 1950s that's actually gone away as a result of technology. And it turns out it's the elevator operator. Mm -hmm. You know, technology has really had a terrible time trying to eliminate positions. As a matter of fact, in most cases, it's exploded the professions. You know, back in 2011, and then there was another article as recently as 2015 or 16 that Forrester put out that talked about the fact that 3 million sales jobs would be eliminated by 2020. Yeah, I know. Well, now we're, listeners are listening to this in 2020. Had, has any of those been eliminated or have they been replaced and added? And now we've seen the sales profession explode over the last five years versus go away. And so I yeah. just, I hope that we can stop claiming the death of things because I don't believe cold calling is dying by any means. No, no. I still think it's an important part. While as a CRO, I wouldn't answer a cold call myself. I believe that every touch point provides an opportunity to build trust or erode trust. Mm -hmm. And if you can leave a voicemail that builds trust, it plays an important role in a multi-touch type campaign. So. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I think it's it's all been overdone. And yes. I think, but I think, you know, you talk about the, the mass hysteria, but I think the, it's sort of interesting conundrum is that the people who are somewhat sort of feeding the hysteria are the people that are also sort of largely responsible for the explosion of the sales employment. I mean, if you look at the tech industry, right? It's, you know, AI. And I say that fondly because I spent most of my career in that business. But, you know, hey, AI is going to eliminate sales. It's like, okay, but you just exploded your sales team to be able to sell that concept. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So you also wrote about, you mentioned too, just about classroom training. And, you know, the claim that younger generations, millennials, Zs, whatever, I guess we call them Zoomers, um, only want a digital learning experience. And, but let, let's sort of broaden the conversation about that because 
as you point out, that's that's likely not true. Um, but we do have this issue that that's well documented. It's been researched by Xerox and other people for decades. Is that classroom training kind of sucks? So um, yeah, I think some people on their hands are welcoming the death of it. And it's sort of place in this whole concept, which I'm passionate about, is that there's so little learning that actually goes on in sales. So, so how do we address that issue in your mind? I mean, because classroom training is like a check the box, let's do that, or let's hire, you know, a speaker like Todd or Andy to come in and do our sales kickoff meeting, and then that line item for training for the year had just been zeroed out. It's like, how do we get? It, I, it's a manager's fault, I think, on one level. How do we get managers serious about? education and learning. Yeah, I think, um, you know, when we get to number four, talking about decision science and behavioral science as something that needs to be taught, well, those concepts apply to the way that we learn. Neuroscientists have figured out how to optimize learning, and most classroom facilitators and teachers don't read or know any of that. You know, I think that part of the reason that we believe that classroom training is dying, it's not only this desire that millennials are going to want an on-demand digital experience versus a classroom, but it's because in most cases, we've just been doing classroom training wrong. Um, you know, we've been teaching in large chunks. Uh, we've been trying to jam as much content into the human brain as humanly possible. We've been death by PowerPointing. Well, but so- let's, let's stop for right there because yeah. it speaks to one of my hot buttons, which is the reason we're cramming all this information. And I, you're talking about, I don't know if you read David Epstein's book, Range, where a great book about education and how we learn. And yeah, his whole thing was that you know, the ideal educational or training experience looks inefficient because it takes longer. You're consuming information in smaller bites. But really, the motivation for the way we train right now is this whole idea that we need to bring people up to speed as quickly as possible, right? That we need to scale and onboard to some mythological 90-day, 60-day, whatever, which feeds into a cycle of bad behavior in terms of you know, short duration of, of employment and other things with the people that we put that through. Yeah, you know um- – a while ago, this was 2011, 2012, uh, I was on the sales leadership team of a company called Exact Target, mm-hmm. um, who many know they got acquired by Salesforce while I was there um, for $2.7 billion in 2013. But back in 2010, 2011, I was tapped on the shoulder to rebuild the enablement program from the ground up. Mm-hmm. So uh, because a long time ago, you know, 2003 to 2006, I owned and operated my own sales training company. You know, not very well. But I at least knew kind of modern learning theory. Right. And so we did a couple of things. Uh, we did take all of the curriculum and we made it on demand in e learning um, so that a rep that comes in could take a class. And then when they need that knowledge three months later, because they just learned how to run a contract process, mm-hmm. they don't need to recall into their brain, like, oh, yeah, that Thursday at 10, we took a class on that. Uh, they can now go take a 15-minute on-demand class, remind themselves of the process, and then go execute it. Mm-hmm. That was awesome because when Salesforce bought us, you know, Benny Hoff's directive was, hey, you've got 60 days to teach my 2,000 reps what I just spent $2.7 billion on. But we laid out the digital training for all of those people, but then we supported it with Classroom. 
the classroom was, we traveled around and got into these classrooms with 30 to 50 people at a time. And I, I believe that classroom training with the pure intent of learning is the wrong pure intent. Mm-hmm. Classroom training is not only about, hey, let's figure out two or three things that we want every participant to walk away with a firm understanding of, not 10, but two or three, and then use the classroom as an opportunity for them to collaborate, to hear each other, to practice with one another, to get to know each other, to network. And then when they go to the bar after class and they're talking, hopefully they're talking about some of the things that they learned and some of the fun things that got brought up. That fosters engagement, collaboration, and it reinforces the two or three things that you're trying to learn. And so I believe classroom training has to play a role, but most people are just not thinking about it the right way. Yeah, I mean, interesting about that, though, is, is that 100% in agreement in terms of the sort of socialization aspect of training and knowledge. But I wonder whether it really has to be a classroom. I, so my belief is that there should be learning every day on the job. Yes. And and this is yeah, – I, I comment on a LinkedIn post a year ago. Somebody was celebrating the fact he thought this SaaS company had – a learning culture. And his evidence was they had an annual learning day. <laughs> and I was like, dude, that's not a learning culture. That's the opposite of a learning culture. You know, that's a, I'm just paying lip service to this culture. And yeah, one of the most successful programs we run is a book club, a curated book club for companies and list of 10 books, read over 12 months. Uh, we provide discussion guides, reading guides, and there's a level of engagement and content that they, you know, they have a daily schedule. They follow 15 minutes a day and then monthly discussions. But, you know, the VP of sales, sales leader, whatever, has something to discuss in every sales meeting that's relevant to it. The sellers are being engaged in content every single day, learning, uh, continuous active learning every single day. And this is very achievable. And yet you get so much resistance from sales leaders. That's why I think this problem really starts at the top because they say, oh, we don't have time for that. And it's like, okay, well, we know from the statistics that you're only spending a third of your time, your sellers, actually talking to prospects or involved in sales. Uh, yeah, if you did 15 minutes a day, that's 3% of the workday. I think you could spend that to help your people get better. Yeah, it's when you say we don't have time for that, I mean, you literally, and this sounds so cheesy, you literally don't have time not to do it. <laughs> well, yeah. Right? I mean, it's like in this era where, you know, back if you were selling, um, you know, back in 2005 before the, I mean, the internet was really getting going then, but anybody that was a walking brochure of a sales rep, they were starting to find themselves at the bottom of the stack ranks, right? That we had mm-hmm. to get into this world as sellers that we were like personal trainers, that we were not only bringing our product knowledge, but we were bringing industry knowledge and we were bringing um, you know, some selling skills to be able to position those the right way. So you know, selling skills, industry knowledge, and then product. Mm-hmm. Product was just a piece of it. But you had to become more like a personal trainer and less like a drive-through attendant who's just like, oh, you want a burger? You want fries with that? And so the only way to do that is through training. If you just fall back on your old selling skills of, hey, I'm just going to feature benefit my way into this client, you're going to lose. And so that classroom environment to learn all three of those things and to become a relevant buyer journey Sherpa uh, versus the selling schlepper 
Um, I think, I mean, that's got to be the future of sales. And that doesn't happen unless there's learning happening every, every day and a big chunk of every day. Yeah, well, I think one of the one of the issues, though, too, is is that you know, how do we break this this idea that yeah, you know, as I just said, sort of the classroom is the way to do it because you know part of the reason I think sales training in its current iteration and this is not new. This has been, I mean, I've been in sales for over forty years. It's been as long as I've been doing it. Is that the classroom training really isn't about learning? It's really about indoctrination. It's really about programming people to a process and a method and harnessing them in a way that's ultimately counterproductive to your point. And this was true when I got started as well as, yeah, everybody feature benefits things. The smart people learn, oh, well, that's, that's not the way this works. Um, but most people don't. And that hasn't fundamentally changed. <laughs> I'm sure it was true 40 years before I got started. I'm sure and probably largely we drew 40 years from now unless we radically change this perception of, of what needs to happen in these learning moments. Yes. Yeah. And I think that the line of what we call classroom training is blurred a bit too. You mentioned sales meetings. Um, you know, I view sales meetings, especially if they're in person and you've got a, a Zoom video going or whatever, that those are, that's like a classroom opportunity. So mm-hmm. like, why do you have a sales meeting? Exactly. The whole purpose of a sales meeting is to help arm and enable your sellers to go be more effective when they're talking to customers and right. prospects. That's kind of a classroom, and that's never going to go away And until we focus our time during those sales meetings around that objective. Um, you know, there still will be the people that perceive classroom training as being, uh, you know, two weeks in a room you know, 4,000 PowerPoint slides. And at the end of two weeks, it's like, hey, congratulations, you're enabled. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we'll get back to enabling, as you said. So number two on your list, which is, you know, always, always a bugaboo for a lot of people in sales, is that your hope is that on Gallup's next annual study of most trusted professions, that sales won't be loitering at the bottom with members of Congress. Yeah. Um, and uh, you talk about your your new book, um, the future of sales is radically transparent. So tell us what you meant by that. Yeah, I mean it's such a, it, it changed my life, which is really weird. Um, and I know I you know before jumping on with you, I listened to Larry Levine's um, selling from the heart, yeah. selling from the heart, like we're kind of kindred spirits, mm-hmm. um, but. It, basically what happened was I was the chief revenue officer of a, a company called Power Reviews for the three years before, um, three and a half years before writing the book. Power Reviews helps retailers and brands collect and display ratings and reviews on the mm-hmm. website. So you're on crocs.com. You're looking at a pair of shoes. You look at the reviews. It was Power Reviews. Mm-hmm. was helping with the collect and display of those. Right. So we ended up um, working with Northwestern University here in Chicago, looking at all right, what do buyers do when a website is acting as the salesperson, right? So you're buying shoes, you're buying clothes. And what they found, like, first of all, no surprise, 96% of us look at reviews before we buy something. Mm -hmm. So, and I haven't found the 4% that don't. Um, Like we're all, if it's medium to high consideration, we haven't bought it before, we're probably reading reviews. But what changed everything for me was the next two data points. Uh, the, and I talked about it in the article was 82% of us skip the positive reviews and go right to the negatives first. So instead of reading the five-star reviews, we'll read the ones, twos, threes, mm-hmm. and fours first, mm-hmm. right? 
then again, that's when a website is acting as the salesperson. But our brains are kind of wired to go drive to try to predict what our experience is going to be like. And then the, the, the next data point was this idea that a product that has an average review score between a 4.2 and a 4.5 actually sells better than any other score, including a 5. Mm-hmm. So a 4.2 sells better than a 5. A product that only has perfect scores doesn't sell as well as the ones that have some negatives. And so, <laughs> by the way, your book has all five star reviews, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's kind of a. Although, yeah, I, there's one four star review, and it's from my nephew. And I'm still about that. All right. <laughs> but, um, but when you just consider that, I started to think all right, we've historically been teaching our sellers to sell as though we're perfect. I mean, I was at SAP in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. We literally used to tell. Uh, sellers and solution consultants, the technical guys that come with us, the answer is always yes. Right. right? And so it, it was like, we always position things as perfect. There are no flaws. Um, well, I then went in and started to dig into the neuroscience around this and go, all right, if that's when a website is acting as a seller, what happens when a human is acting as a seller? And what I found really quickly is the exact same thing happens. A buyer is wired to try to predict their experience. And when we sell nothing but perfection, we actually put up what's called a limbic filter, which is mm-hmm. the buyer's brain going, whoa, 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 I need to go do research, which is why, according to Gartner, 61% of a buyer's time is spent basically back-channeling you, right? Um, doing research mm-hmm. with and uh, you know, checking with their buddies that have experience in the category. Sure. If it's tech, they're looking at G2.com or TrustRadius. If it's any company, they're actually looking at Glassdoor now to predict sure. what people are like. And so the, the, those two things came together for me that, all right, the brain is wired to resist perfection. So when we embrace our flaws and sell as though we're a 4.2 to a 4.5, magic happens. Uh, you know, Sales cycles shrink, win rates go up. We only work deals that we should win and stop working the deals that we shouldn't. But there's now this proliferation of reviews and feedback and everything we do by an experience anyway. So you have to. So I think those, that combination, if, we, if sellers realize that leading with their flaws, it certainly builds trust so rapidly, but you combine that with this proliferation of reviews that sellers are going to have to become a vital purpose in the buying journey. And I think that that's where you start to see trust uh, build and sellers become an important piece versus this necessary evil that they've been historically. Yeah, and, I, and looking at the article and, and looking through your book is, is yeah, I, I agree 100%. I'd, I'd probably use slightly different terminology because um, I think we're, you talk about be wired to resist influence. I think we're wired to resist being sold yes. uh, more yep. than influence because influence, I think, in sales, people misuse the word influence <laughs> to say and they conflate it with persuasion and convincing which influence is not influence is having an impact or an effect on someone where persuasion is really a coercive act so but i but the point is right and i i was that says looking through your book and 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 reading the article is like it really resonated with me because when i started sales i was working for a company called burroughs at the time it was the second largest computer company in the world But it was at a time when IBM owned 80% of the share market share in the computer business. So we were all 
horrible underdogs. And so there was no way we could pretend to be perfect. And, and so I sort of learned early on is that, yeah, I had to deal with the fact that, you know, they called the industry, they called it IBM and the seven dwarfs. I mean, <laughs> every time we went into a competitive account, a guy from IBM had been there and IBM was famous for spreading their fear, uncertainty, and doubt, the FUD factor. Um, yet I still want a ton of business. And I was like, yeah, okay, how do I do that? And yeah, it's being transparent about who you are and what you can do. And, and I think also the other element of transparency, which, which I think is really an issue in terms of being a barrier for trust, which I'm sure you've encountered many times, is, is we need to be transparent in our motives in dealing with the, the customers. And, and this one we've all experienced, right? End of the month crunch, but you've preceded that by two months of telling the customer, we're here to help you, we're here to serve you. But this gets to the end of the month or the end of the quarter. It's like, hey, but if you sign today <laughs> and suddenly, yeah, the blinders are off for the customer. If they thought you were there to help them, that suddenly disappears. doesn't mean they're not going to buy from you, but the nature of the relationship is really different. And if you're worried about churn and so on, yeah, they're going to churn quickly. Yeah, there's um, the, the thing that I teach the most now as a result of this, and I I rolled it out at Exact Target and Power Reviews, and now mm-hmm. the it's some this concept called transparent negotiating, mm-hmm. uh, which sounds so counterintuitive, but it's this idea that you know in business, let's say we're selling tech, there's four things that matter to our business, right? How much you buy, how fast you pay, how long you commit, and when you sign, and so part of what transparent negotiating is is instead of taking on a new personality once the client says yes and say. Oh, you're going to buy from me? All right, cool. I'm going to start lying to you mm-hmm. and play ping pong on, uh, you need 30% off? Well, I can give you 10. And we go back and forth until we end up in the middle. And then we're both like, ah, I got them. Um, like that's, that always drove me crazy. So this idea of transparent negotiation at its core is to be transparent with your motives. Exactly mm-hmm. what you just said, mm-hmm. which is to say, hey, listen, um, our pricing is based on these four things. So when you first talk about pricing. When you lay out the proposal, you outline that, hey, your pricing is based on those four things. When the negotiation comes, you then get an opportunity to reiterate that. As the client asks for a discount, you can say, all right, I I understand why you need that discount. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we've got a way that we can work with you on that. You know, commit to more volume. Can't do that. Okay, great. How about pay us faster? Um, How about commit longer? And oh, by the way, there's value to us in our business in being able to predict our business. I, I know we're coming up here on the, you know, the end of the month. Um, if you, if we can rally around the end of the month, I'll pay you in the form of a discount to help us predict our business. Mm-hmm. And if not, that's cool, but that change around alignment, skin in the game for the customer and them understanding why you're offering an end of the month discount. It's amazing how that rallying point changes the perception that a, that a customer has. I, and it, it works like magic to be able to say, "Hey, listen! I, the reason that I'm offering the end of this end of the month is because I think we're close, and there'd be value to us. So I want to pay you in the form of a discount." Right? Yeah. And it, so, have you read Adam Grant's book, Give and Take? No, I haven't. Okay, no. another another great book. He talk about givers and takers, um, mm-hmm. and and one of the key points it makes in the book is that you can be 
a giver, well, it's a couple of key points. One is, yeah, there's this talk and Gartner was talking about it recently in their latest research about, you know, sort of the unfettered giver, which is a problem, right? Yeah. But, and what Grant found in, in the studies, and I'm not sure it's his study or somebody else, is that when you take, there's givers, takers, and matchers, people basically give as much as they take, um, is that taker, givers, unfettered givers, actually are least successful in their careers. But the most successful are givers. <laughs> so they're both the bottom and the top. But, yeah, it's okay to have a self-interest when you give, is what he talks about in the book. You just have to be clear about it, to your point, that, you know, hey, this is, this is, this is what we're trying to achieve. This is what's in it for you. This is what's in it for me. And it creates a, a position of influence with the buyer when you can do that. Because, again, you're being very transparent about it. And they expect that you have self-interest, right? I mean, that's I'm always suspicious of people that you know, you know, the unfettered givers, because it's like, no, no, this person's just not realistic. They don't get it, whatever. You know, there's gotta be something in it for you, and that's okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that having a framework for those four things, I would guess that for most of your listeners, it's you want your customers to buy more, pay faster, commit longer, and sign when you want them to sign. So having that framework is super simple for you to just start to memorize and attach value to. Mm -hmm. But the, the second piece to your point is you actually enable your buyers to negotiate their own deals then. And that's been the fun and the magic of this is even, you know, if you've got a, a SaaS offering and there's a renewal involved, you've got customers that are saying, hey, listen, I want to buy a little more, but I can't pay at that level. So we literally had this happen at Power Reviews where a customer committed to more, mm -hmm. but they decided to renew for three years instead of one and pay us annually instead of quarterly. Right. And they basically came and they said, if I understand your levers correctly, this is how this works. And we're like, here's the paperwork, all done. Yeah, so, they I put mean, together the deal for you, right? Exactly. They, yeah. they rolled it. And uh, while we maybe gave some dollars away, in return, we got a three-year commitment and we're getting cash paid faster. Right. And it's amazing how that just the transparency around negotiation, but obviously, like we talked about the four, two to four, five and building trust yeah. is super important. But in negotiation, I think it has a huge impact on your deal values and your predictability. You know, I found this is from my experience, again, growing sales teams at startups and so on is, is the biggest, most effective way to increase deal value was to get sales out of the middle of negotiating altogether. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, well, yeah, if you could give them a framework, I, I think that's a great way to think about it. No, we had contract negotiators. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. I mean, that's their job. And these yeah. were professional contract negotiators. And you get sales out of the middle of the relationship at, in terms of you know the negotiating relationship. Because here is somebody who spent all this time building up this trusted relationship with, and suddenly you're an adversary. And yeah, really unproductive place to be. And and this was the brainchild of this, this one CEO at this company, which was just genius. Is and we helped us sign some really big deals because, yeah, salespeople shouldn't be negotiating. Yeah, I know that's it's con controversial for some listening, yeah, but that's counterintuitive. But, but salespeople are horrible negotiators, just FYI, yeah. in general. Well, I'll, I'll give you one last example there. Um, where I discovered this concept was going and negotiating a four plus million dollar deal uh, back in 2009. Mm -hmm. where 
I was walked in. I was the VP of sales of a company. My rep brought me in to talk to the procurement person. Right. I walked into the room and there was five of them instead of one. And they immediately just pounded me with, we need 30% off. And I knew that like the, the, you know, the typical, well, I can't do 30. Did I tell you about the value? Like that BS that never gets you anywhere. And instead I was like, Hey, maybe we can trade a little bit here. And I wrote those four things on the, the whiteboard mm-hmm. and like magic happened. They were the five of them were negotiating their own deal. Yeah. And I was, I think sellers can do this. I mean this, and it becomes less adversarial and more, Hey, here's the framework for the way our pricing is structured. We priced it this way for a, a reason. And if you need to get that price down, here's the ways you can do it. Yeah. And I agree, but see what I did and what I train people and teach people to do is you do that as part of qualification. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, you got to do it at the beginning. If yeah. negotiation is an event, it's like going to a marathon and running it without training, right? Yeah. Tony will be popping off at mile eight. You because, gotta, because you got to t- have it at the beginning. Right. Because yeah. you, you tie all that to the outcomes they want to achieve and they know this. And yeah, if we can't qualify you on, you know, you've quantified what your business outcome will be. That's really essential, right? What's your business case? Do you have business case? What's this? If you want 10% market, in, market share increase, what's that mean in terms of dollars? Let's tie it to the investment you have to make. They can't tie that. I'm, that's, they're not qualified. I'm not going to find myself at the end saying, give me a 30% discount. It's like, no, no, you're, just, you're not a prospect for what I'm selling. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. Okay. So let's go on to number three. So number yeah. three on your list of your hopes was to see even more, and you brought this up before, see even more attention paid to behavioral and decision science in the sales profession. And let me just preface it by saying, couldn't agree more, but I do have a caveat. So we'll get into that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there's two things that are pretty easy, but they're at their core of what neuroscientists have figured out around the way we make decisions. The first one is this idea that we make all of our decisions in the feeling and emotion center of our brain and only use the logic to back it up. Mm-hmm. And, and that's um, the reason that I, I'm so emphatic about that is I still see sellers leading with their, their NASCAR slide and their, uh, hey, this is our mission. Here's our products. Here's our awards we've won. Like, we, 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 this is how awesome we are. Very logical. A, a NASCAR slide is a perfect example of a polarizing slide. Because while you walk in and you display this slide that's got these great logos on it, half of your audience is going is walking in for you. Half mm-hmm. of the audience is walking in again. So let's just perceive that. Sure. The half that's for you looks at those logos and says, oh, wow, if they're good enough for those guys, they're good enough for us. That's great. I'm going to use that in my justification. But the other five that are against you when they walk in might look at that and go, wow, we're going to be a little fish in a big pond. or I don't really see companies in our vertical. Do they even know our business, right? So your logic... Or I just, you, I just flat out don't believe it. <laughs> oh, yeah. It could be like, yeah, we're, they're like one little piece in right. a billion-dollar organization. Right. Everybody claims that LinkedIn is a customer, right? Or whoever. So um, when, when you think about that, there's an opportunity to, instead of starting with we, we flip the script and tell a story that's... And like we probably don't have time to go too deep into it, but I teach people to present like the choreography that's used in reality makeover TV shows. And so that sounds very okay. counterintuitive, but I mean, what, am I, what does a reality makeover TV show do? They've got a participant that's volunteered. So very similar to sales. It's not like you're barging in conference room to conference room going, you guys need your stuff. Um, so they, they're invited in. They very quickly show that participant that 
what they believe their problem to be is broader, more urgent, their status quo is less sustainable. They match up emotion with the logic. So the two go together. And by the end of the show, the, the participant is willing to run through a brick wall for the, the people that are facilitating the show. Right. And in every case, they do that. And that's basically what we want to happen in sales. So it's really just about reordering your slides to tell a story. So neuroscience piece number one, emotion and logic, or I'm sorry, emotion and feeling over logic. Mm-hmm. Take your logic, put it to the back, tell a story. Um, and then the, the second piece is uh, this, this whole idea around that resistance to influence. And how do you disarm that limbic filter that is, and you said, you know, you're right. I use influence a little bit more broadly, but it is that right. reason to being sold to. Right. And this idea that transparency sells better than perfection, I think, is a great example of how you disarm that. And, uh, you know, once the sales community starts to understand that, I think there's a tremendous opportunity for sellers to move up that Gallup list, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so, right. So several points is, is you know, my only caveat about decision science, behavioral science, is that and there's you know there's been this this or what they call it a crisis over the last five plus years in social sciences is they can't reproduce the results of many of the studies that that <laughs> we base. So uh, I think the famous one was I think Amy Cuddy with power posing and so on. But even Kahneman, in terms of in thinking fast and slow, has published I won't say a retraction, but close to because he had said, hey, this is settled science, and then it's like, yeah, okay, maybe not. Um, or you know, one of the classic ones is you know. That we've learned, and I think uh, you know, Cialdini talked about the research and influences that you know people make decisions more to avoid a loss than to get a gain. Then the last year, a new research out of Northwestern saying, "Nope, absolutely wrong. It's completely opposite." I was uh, going to say. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so it, I think it's valuable because these gives you perspectives as a seller yeah. to the. And what what I get troubled by is that. People like you and me, because <laughs> I've done it too, is we start to present these things as as hey, this is what happens 100 percent of the time, and the fact is that it doesn't. We just, I think, the key is we want people to, yeah. One of the one of the watchwords or sayings I live my life by and have forever is yeah. You would, it's from Thomas Huxley, as a 19th century British writer, saying that you know, in life, your goal should be to learn. Something about everything and everything about something. Mm-hmm. And, That's great. and this is this is what people do is it doesn't matter what's hundred percent right, it doesn't matter. It's just it's a perspective, it's something to keep in mind because you yeah, everyone wants a recipe. And the fact is when you walk out the door as a salesperson, you're gonna go talk to one of what, seven and a half billion people in this world, and you could talk to all seven and a half billion, each conversation, each interaction would be unique and different. Yes. And so, if you're armed with this this perspective, well, maybe this is a person that's that is investing more to avoid a loss than a gain. Perfect, right? It doesn't have to be true 100 percent of the time. Everyone wants the certainty, <laughs> and that's that's why I, I you know rebel against the this idea that you know everything is true. It's no, just learn all these things because they give you ammunition to use when you're in a situation and that you perhaps don't know what to do. As yeah. opposed to saying, I'm just going to blunder through with our process. And, you know, you talked about Gartner earlier. Here's a perfect example, though it's not <laughs> tied to decision science necessarily. But, you know, a year ago, a year and a half ago, they come out with new research saying this is the buyer's journey. And they call it their spaghetti diagram. 
you know, it's not a linear stage based progression like every sales process in the world is. It was a jumble, right? And they weren't, they looked at it four jobs they had to get done, but it wasn't a linear process. It, there was a lot of uh, revision, re- recurrence on, on tasks. And yet, you talk to every sales organization in the world, they haven't, I haven't seen a one. And I talk to hundreds of people a year on this show and so on. Not a one who's changed their selling process to reflect what that buying process is. And there's some behavioral stuff in there that they should be thinking about. And they just unmindful of it. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it comes down to empathy. Um, that you know, if sellers at least have empathy for the buyer, knowing the basics of how decision-making gets made, but being able to, when you talk about learn something about everything and everything about something, I, I just wrote that down because I love that line. Um, because it's like, if I'm selling to marketers, I better be able to empathize with what the marketer's challenges are and learn as much as I can about that. And then just optimize your selling approach for those things. I, I mean, that that's, that's a big step forward that I don't see a whole lot today. But, you know, to your point about selling processes, uh, the, the one thing that I am starting to see that I love because it makes a, a difference is at least selling organizations are starting to forecast based on the recognition of where buyers are in their journey mm-hmm. instead of the, <laughs> what did the salesperson do last? <laughs> the weighted, weighted average probability, yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's like, I still see some forecasts where it's like, Hey, we did discovery. They're at twenty five percent. We did a proposal. Seventy five percent or seventy. Yeah, seventy five percent of the proposal. And uh, like you know, we did a demo. Oh, they're at ninety. <laughs> no, that's got nothing to do with what the buyers what's going on in the buyer's brain. And if well, we, but just logically that. though, and I, I, I'm sure you've thought about this, is because yeah, I, I wrote about this in my my second book. Is like okay, if you have four sellers. And they're all using that same methodology. And they all say, we got a 75% probability of winning the deal if we submit a proposal. And four sellers to submit proposals, you don't have a 75% chance of winning. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Just yep. FYI. <laughs> In case that hadn't occurred to you. Well, it's like you know, the whole issue of, of another of my bugaboos is or win rates and pipeline coverage you know, in SaaS companies. And, and I was presenting to a group of SaaS CEOs. And I said, have any of you ever figured out that you're your win rate is the reciprocal of your pipeline coverage ratio. <laughs> and it's like, uh, yeah, so those of you who want 7x seven, seven coverage, uh, you're saying, I want a 12% win rate? Is that what you want? <laughs> right. It's yeah. just like, uh, yeah. Okay, so let's move on to enablement because I, I want to talk about what you have to say on that and then also I want to throw an idea out at you because you worked in that space. Yeah. Uh, but your hope for enablement was to see in 2020 see organizations realize that sales enablement needs 2x to 3x the investment most organizations are giving it. So tell us about that. Well, yeah, I think, you know, as a CRO, um, when I had, I, I built my team up to about 20 and I went to my CEO and said, listen, I need enablement support. And, uh, you know, my CEO looks at me and says, I thought that was your job. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and, and so like it starts with that. But it goes to, you know, as you grow these organizations, being able to have somebody who's solely focused is on making sure that they're optimized is hugely valuable. Now, when I would ask for that enablement resource, my CEO would look at me and say, all right, we've got X number of dollars. We've already done the salesperson productivity calculation that shows that we invest this much in a rep, we'll get this much return. 
So let's just keep doing that. And my argument back, especially in this era where we now have this massive demand for sellers with very short supply, is that the dollars that go into enablement are going to pay you back in a huge way because you can't find the sellers in this, you know, this employment world right now that have the experience you're looking for. So you're going to have to hire them a level down mm-hmm. and then you're going to have to enable them, right? You're going to have to teach them. You're going to have to bring them up. Otherwise, you're going to be searching forever and spending three to five X on recruiting. And then the second piece that happens is as we grow our sales organizations, you look around for managers and you're like, well, let's promote from within because we can't find the managers that have the good experience. So we take a rep, we promote them to a manager and the manager says, all right, how do I do this? And it's just like, well, just do what you do. Like, mm. you know, our company, you know, our products, just lead your team. And they look around and they're like, all right, can I find a book or something? <laughs> like, there, there's very little training. Yes. And then the kind of the third level of that is then you've got a short invested enablement team that has only so much time and bandwidth. So what do they spend their time on? Well, they're going to spend it on the five reps you hired, not the one internal person that you promoted to manage. So now you've got leaders that don't have leadership ability. And then Gallup just came out with their study that showed that only 34% of employees are actually engaged at work. And and 70% of that is attributed to their manager and their leaders that aren't trained. So huge opportunity gap there. You invest in enablement, the return is massive versus just trying to find people that already know how to do the job. Right. Well, and I'd say go a step above saying invest in enablement. Invest in your people, right? Because that's to me, yeah. that's really the message of Gallup is, is that people stay when they feel valued. They feel valued when you th- are investing in them. And yeah. so, yeah. So I don't know how much you follow what I write and talk about, but I'm a huge soccer fan. No surprise to most people <laughs> listening to this. And always have a lot of lessons coming from soccer for sales. But one of the ones that's really dawned on me is, is when you look at how a professional soccer team organizes its staff, okay, compared to what we do in sales, it's, it's just mind-blogging. So here are two organizations, both focused on performance, right? And increasingly both driven by data and metrics that they can capture. I mean, in, in soccer players, you ever see them take their shirts off, it looks like they're wearing a little bra. I mean, that's a, the, an activity monitor, a real time that they're tracking. Uh, so every step and so on. So if you look at how a, a soccer team is structured, you know, you've got a manager, and then they'll have, oftentimes, they have multiple teams of a first team, which is the one you see on TV, they'll have a reserve team. They have different coaches, and then they'll have a director of performance, maybe who focuses on skill development. They'll have a professional a pro- director of performance who focuses on mindset. I mean, you ever watch the show Billions? Yes. Yep. Why doesn't every sales organization have a Wendy role? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> yeah. seriously, right. this we're a business that so much of it, you know, we talk about peak performance, it's mindset, it's attitude, it's confidence, and yet we do nothing, absolutely nothing. And so... Uh, yeah, and then these these teams all have you know two or three deep data analytics departments. They have video departments. Now, now, now we've got conversational intelligence. We can, but we we put on the 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 manager to do that. 
We should have a whole team of people that are focused on nothing but, or if you're a smaller organization, get one person that's you know analyzing the calls and saying, look, this is what we do better. Instead, we're just so focused. We use these tools to, again, in such a trite fashion. Um, so, but the point being is, if you had a sales organization that was structured like that, right, that was really focused, we got a this person's just going to help you on skill development. That's all they do. They're not training, skill development. And this one's just on mindset and so on and so forth. And yet, you couldn't find any VP of sales that I've met that would sign up to say, yeah, I'm going to make that investment. But you then look to your point earlier about attrition rates and productivity rates and so on. Would all be dramatically different if they did. Yet we're still, man- and my point is we manage sales like we did 100 plus years ago. Exactly. Hasn't fundamentally changed. And the resistance starts at the top. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I'll I'll leave you with one last stat. There was a Glint study that came out that looked at, it actually interviewed heads of HR and said, what percentage of your team is engaged? Right. Remember, Gallup said 34% when Mm -hmm. they interviewed actual employees. HR leaders across the board on average said 70%. So, there's a massive disconnect in our self-perception of what our own employees' engagement <laughs> is versus reality anyway. And I think it leads to a lot of that underinvestment. Yeah. And I think it'd just be so different if, if somebody came into work at sales and you had an email from your director of performance saying, hey, you know, want to deconstruct a couple of these calls we heard. You know, we saw on you got you know, your mindset person saying, look, you know, based on what's happening, maybe we should have a you know, 20-minute talk about you know, confidence building or something. World, you don't think people would be engaged to stick around? Of course they would, because they would see their their performance go up. They'd see their earnings go up. Um, yeah, don't even get me started on productivity. But anyway, so lastly, yeah, your last hope, and <laughs> couldn't agree more with this, is to see organizations come to the realization the benefit of having sales floors where everything is open, uh, no walls, is dwarfed by the benefit of higher walls, offices, or pods. Yeah. Yeah, this is one that as I was researching for the book, I found a book that was talked about the, the science essentially of what annoys us. <laughs> and when it, when it listed the things that very acutely annoy us, they all are present in a sales floor. And, you know, making calls and selling, it's a high anxiety role. And then you match that up with creating an environment that's as annoying and anxiety ridden as possible. And we're crushing the productivity of our sellers. I mean, a couple of the things that jumped out about the study, it said, you know, it, our brains are impossible to shut out a sound or a conversation mm-hmm. that is, A, potentially relevant. Right. In a sales floor, every conversation is potentially right. relevant. Uh, number two is the ends cannot be predicted. So you can't predict when it's going to end. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could go on forever. So your brain just gets annoyed yeah. by that. When's this over? When's... <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And then the third piece is that uh, when you can only hear one side of the conversation. Now, you take those three things and say, all right, a, a rep on the phone that's across from me is making uh, having a conversation that's potentially relevant. I don't know when it'll end. And um, you know it, the, that last piece around you can only hear one side of the conversation. Our brains are trying to predict what the other person's going to say. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And then you match up a fourth thing that annoys our brain. It's the uh, judgment anxiety. Meaning, if I look around and I see eyeballs, I think those people are listening to me. Mm -hmm. Right? And so, whether they are or not, they probably aren't. But our brains are wired to for false positives. Right? 
Now you throw all four of those in a floor <laughs> and we created an environment that we, you know, I talk to the leaders and they look at me like I'm crazy. They're like, oh no, we've got sound machines. Uh, well, great. Um, hey, the, the learning that happens from listening to each other is like the value of that. I'm like, well, okay, maybe a little, like, yeah, but, sure. There's a trade off, but, but gosh, they're, they're supposed to be on the, they're supposed to be on the phone, not listening to other people and learning. Exactly. <laughs> You're literally crushing their emotional and subconscious spirit by creating yeah. this for them. And so uh, that's absolutely. why when you watch HDTV, you know, they used to, everything was open floor plans. Well, now you hear so much. There's a show that's about man caves and she sheds. Why do you need a man cave and a she shed? It's because there was a purpose for those walls. Yeah. Like, you know, like men want their time by themselves. Women want that time with themselves, right? And you start seeing houses that have multiple living rooms now. And then you see environmentalists that are talking about this idea that heating and cooling a massive open room is bad for the environment. Yeah. So I think we're going to come to a point where maybe the walls start coming back because we realize they were there for a reason. And in a sales capacity, they optimize for the sales brain that I think will create better performance and better engagement from your sellers if you think about doing it. Yeah. Well, Harvard came out with a study, I think, in the last year that basically said yeah this open floor plan for all the reasons you decided is just bullshit yeah. right it's, yeah, we, should, <laughs> we should get rid of it i mean i started my first job four years in an open office you know is a sales bullpen now the saving grace was this was so long ago <laughs> that we only had one phone that i shared with the person sitting next to me so i yeah. had to take turns so and i <laughs> and actually got pretty good at shutting him out but um you know we we're also we weren't inside sales either we were out in the field right i was supposed to be in the field from 8 30 to 4 30 every day so um didn't have quite have that that same issue but yeah i just i yeah go into companies and see that and and i have to admit the clients i've worked with the ones that have partitions have you know half pods uh, or something half cubes I, much better off you know people to all the reasons you talked about is i'm that way i wouldn't i if i thought three or four people are listening to my call I wouldn't be happy about it. Well, you at least, from a brain perspective, would not be optimized on your call anyway, right? Well, and that's why you can't be because you're thinking what people are. These people are judging me. To your point, right? Exactly. So I can't yeah. be. I can't be present for the client because I'm thinking these people are listening and judging me. And so I'll and be, that's why. Like I was just at LinkedIn's Chicago headquarters last week, and they've got pods. These cool, beautiful pods all over the sales floor now, which are like uh, high-end phone booths. Mm -hmm. where the rep can go in and take those calls. The reason those are popping up everywhere is that these organizations are coming to the realization that the open floor plan does not work, um, but they're trying to still maintain some semblance of creating an environment where you're amongst family and you're collaborating and all that too. And I, I'm cool with that. It, it just, sure. something has to change. Right, but that's what cubicles are for, right? Right, and, yeah. I mean, again, I worked in sales in a cubicle environment. That was, that was fine. Yeah, I mean, it was just too. just yeah. just so I couldn't see the person made a huge difference. If I really paid attention, I could listen to John next door. But I had other things to do. I didn't want to worry about John. But I think the Harvard study said that even this whole socialization aspect of not having the walls and the open floor plan also doesn't work either. Is the reason you know the anxieties and also I spend so much time with you. I don't want to socialize with you. I don't even want to go to lunch with you. Right, because I'm sitting next to you all the time, as opposed to if you're in cubicles, you see somebody, we meet at the water cooler, hey, let's go to lunch, whatever. Yeah. Well, yeah. it was the, uh, it was funny at Power Reviews, the open floor plan among our engineering staff, every single engineer was listening to music while they were working anyway. So they yeah. weren't hearing each other, they weren't talking to each other, they were in their business, headphones on. So it's kind of counter 
it, it, counterproductive anyway to have the open environment because it's not giving you the results you want. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right, well, Todd, this has been fantastic. Uh, and I kind of hope the audience has enjoyed it as well. This is a little longer than our usual, but uh, hey, good talk. So tell people how they can contact you and find out more about you and your book. Yeah, yeah. So the book is called The Transparency Sale, available wherever you buy books. But you can find me. I encourage you to follow me on LinkedIn. I share a lot of my nonsense there. And uh, you can check out transparencysale.com for more info, a blog, and all kinds of other craziness that will hopefully help you in your sales pursuits. Excellent. Well, good. Well, Todd, it's been a real pleasure. And we'll make sure we do this again. I'd love to. That was a blast. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Okay, friends, that was Accelerate for the week. First of all, as always, I want to thank you for joining me. We're so very grateful for you listening to us. And I want to thank my guest, Todd Capone. Join me again next week as my guest will be Patrick Morrissey. Pat's the Senior Vice President and GM of Upland Software's Altify's CRO Solution Suites. Uh, we're going to talk about that uh, acquisition of, of Altify by Upland. And we'll also be talking, getting into details about this emerging field of customer revenue optimization in the world of complex B2B selling. You'll definitely want to check this out. Be sure to join Pat and me next week for that conversation. Now, before you go, don't forget to visit andypaul.com. There you get my copy, or get your copy, excuse me, of my sales growth planner for 2020. Now, the sales growth planner will walk you through a step-by-step process to create an incredibly effective sales plan that will help you hit your targets. And yeah, we're almost halfway through the first quarter, but it's still never too late to start putting together a great plan to help you reach your goals. And this is the same sales plan format I used throughout my entire career. So more information or to order your copy, visit andypaul.com forward slash planner. That's andypaul.com forward slash planner to get your copy today. We'll see you there. So thanks again for joining me. Until next week, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.